0: The Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, what's that crater sparkle on Ceres that's winking at us? Could it be alien artifacts or a gateway to an alternate universe where gifting is a verb? Long-term bad hair and total muscular atrophy— can any translunar biolab solve the big problem of human interplanetary travel? Plus part 50 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's hard magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This is the 103rd. Bain-free radio hour podcast we've done, well, that is by my humanities major count, which is not entirely reliable, but usually approximately correct. So yay, we've broken a hundred. This time, podcast's senior correspondent and Bain slushmaster general, Gray Reinhardt, continues with part two of his interview with Dr. Ted Roberts, discussing Robert's article at Bain.com outlining a plan for a translunar space-based biological research laboratory as an essential step toward long-term human survival in space. Good stuff there. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. First, here's the news. With a hey-lolly-ho, the New March hardcovers and uh, trade paperbacks are out at booksellers everywhere, or about to be. These include Into the Maelstrom by David Drake and John Lambshead. This is Drake and Lambshead's sequel to Into the Hinterlands, and it is book two in the Citizen series, which, if you look closely enough, you'll see is cleverly conceived science fiction based loosely on the American Revolutionary War era. Also out is a new edition of Eric Flint's first novel, Mother of Demons. It's out in a beautiful leather-bound edition. This is a really fascinating book where you find a lot of the themes that you see in Eric's other work presented for the first time. We have an in-depth interview with Eric Flint talking about Mother of Demons on an upcoming podcast. In the meantime, if you want to read it, better get this one while the getting's good. Also available is new military fantasy anthology, Operation Arcana. There's some good storytelling in this one, and it is edited by well-known editor of Lightspeed Magazine, John Joseph Adams. So, good stuff. End to the Maelstrom, Mother of Demons, Leatherbound Edition, and Operation Arcana are now available at booksellers. Unless you're listening to this on Podcast Pub Day, in which case you'll have to wait until next Tuesday to get the print editions. I'll bet you can find the e-books out there already, though. Just a hunch.
2: This is part two of a two-part interview with Dr. Ted Roberts, neuroscientist and author of the article, A Translunar Laboratory, Hurrah! Available on Bain.com. Now, you talk about the fact that the, the monkeys have the the long bones and we can look at the effects of microgravity on them and extrapolate from that to the effects on, on humans. And in terms of studying the effects of microgravity, you propose that the laboratory needs to have the, the spinning characteristic that has been a staple of science fiction for years in which Uh, Spinning the station induces a gravitation-like force. How do you think that really would work in terms of physiology, and have you seen any stories that deal with it realistically from your standpoint as a biomedical researcher?
3: That's difficult to say in terms of realistic depiction. The problem is that while physically, in terms of the physical equations, spin-induced gravity, centrifugal force, is equivalent to mass-produced gravity. In other words, gravity produced by the actual physical mass of a planet, but we don't know physiologically, how that is going to work. The point is that the standard gravity felt on the surface of the planet is always pointing in one direction. There's one vector of gravity, and there's really no other forces operating on it. In a spinning space station or a spinning spacecraft, there's two forces to worry about. One is the apparent gravity of the centrifugal force, but the other is the fact that they're in an angular momentum. And the gravity that you feel in a centrifuge, uh, if you... you that you feel on a merry-go-round or if you go to one of the big parks that has the centrifuge ride or if you've been fortunate enough in pilot or astronaut training to have experienced one of the large uh, training centrifuges, there are two forces to deal with. One is the fact that it is spinning and the other, the, uh, the fact that you've got a essentially a constant acceleration producing the sensation of gravity. Now, if you've ever been on a centrifuge or a merry-go-round or something spinning fast and turned your head, you'll notice that it actually makes you quite dizzy. And the reason is because human balance is controlled by the inner ear, the vestibular system. There are three loops that that are filled with fluid and have sensitive cells that can detect changes in the speed of the fluid. That's called the vestibular system, the inner ear, the semicircular canals, or also known as the labyrinths of the inner ear. There are three loops on either side, and they are positioned to sense changes in three dimensions. The problem is when you have a spinning or spin-induced gravity That is not the same force because there is motion, there is acceleration in more than one direction. What we really do not know physiologically is whether or not an astronaut that is in a spinning habitat and changes the direction of their head is going to experience that change as vertigo. We we know this as Coriolis forces. We know that there is a physical change in how things operate in spin, when they're spinning. And so one of the biggest unknowns in the physiology of artificial gravity is how the human body is going to react to the spin. This is one of the reasons, another one of the reasons for having an animal laboratory, because then we can not have to deal with simply five or six astronauts, but we can have, you know, quite a few animal subjects. And it can be rodents, it can be uh, monkeys, it can be a number of different subjects that we can study, and we can look at things like individual variability. One of the screening techniques used for astronauts is how do they withstand being put into a centrifuge? Can they take this type of, can they tolerate this uh, type of motion? And to get people into space and to get colonists into space, we need to be talking about um, more than just the most tolerant and most fit astronauts. So that's one of the big unknowns. The, the other unknown is how much time do we actually have to experience that spin-induced gravity. There was a proposal to put a small centrifuge on the International Space Station. And one variation of that was to say, okay, we'll make it very small, and the astronauts will lay down in it, and they'll go to sleep at night. The problem with that is that doesn't put any gravity effects on the long bones of the body. So we really don't know if that would be enough. We don't know if it would be sufficient. So, again, we need a large enough habitat that we can spin it. We can get some reasonable effect of being able to see the... Uh, The centrifugal forces and the Coriolis forces and understand how they affect the body. Now, as far as what I have seen, whether anything uh, deals with this realistically in science fiction, we don't really see a whole lot of it. The authors have the tendency to either say we're going to create an artificial gravity and we don't really care how it works, but all of our Space explorers are going to experience gravity, or they have a tendency to say, we will just use a spinning wheel or a spinning ball a spinning habitat, and that will be enough. I will say that one of the more realistic approaches used in fiction is to talk about vessels that accelerate constantly or decelerate constantly, because then what you do have is you have gravity that is always being generated in one direction and not having all of the complications of spin. So in that case, there is a realistic uh, depiction, but it's very difficult to have a writer decide to take this on, because frankly, the physics of it would not necessarily be interesting to the reader, and it wouldn't necessarily push the story forward.
2: Those are very good points. So you've proposed a laboratory that involves spinning in order to test whether that is effective in countering the effects of free fall and whether people and uh, organisms can handle the Coriolis force that goes with it, and... You've also proposed specifically putting it in a translunar orbit in order to better study the effects of radiation. Could you explain to folks why uh, that is important and why it couldn't be done, say, in a low-Earth or, or medium-Earth orbit?
3: Well, the main reason is that low-Earth orbit really is not exposed to all of the radiation that would be encountered by an interplanetary or an interstellar spaceflight. The Earth is surrounded by a magnetosphere. The spinning core of the Earth produces a magnetic field, and that magnetic field either deflects or traps the high-energy charged particles that come from the sun or that come as part of the galactic cosmic radiation. Part of radiation is heavy protons, protons, electrons, and some very heavy protons. One of the ones studied a lot is iron nuclei, iron nuclei that have been stripped of all of their electrons. So now what you have is a fairly heavy I believe the molecular weight is about 56. Uh, 56 molecular weight iron. That is all protons and neutrons, so it's highly positively charged. Well, the Earth's magnetosphere can actually trap and either deflect or block that type of radiation, and the magnetosphere runs the the major extent of the fairly tight magnetosphere is about 57,000 kilometers above the Earth, although there is a tail uh, because the solar wind has is, is pushing against the Earth's magnetosphere. There is a compression on the Sun's side, and there's a tail on the uh, side away from the Sun. It looks a lot like what you would see from a comet in terms of the solar wind affecting the particles that come off of a comet and making a tail. Well, the Earth has exactly that in terms of its magnetic field and the particles that come from the sun and from cl- cosmic radiation. Well, the International Space Station is about 400 to 500 kilometers in altitude above the Earth and low-Earth orbit runs from about 1,000 to 2,000 kilometers, and geosynchronous orbit is about 35,000 kilometers, and yet the magnetosphere runs out to almost 60,000 kilometers. So any of those points above the Earth are still going to be largely shielded from the effects of radiation. Now, the Moon is orbiting about 400,000 kilometers, And the L2 point beyond the moon is sitting at, I'm not sure the exact calculation, but it is about uh, 550 to 60,000 kilometers. So in that position, it's actually out of the Earth's magnetosphere, and except for about Six to ten days when the moon is full, it's not even shadowed by the Earth. During that time, when the moon is full, the tail of the shock wave uh, from the solar wind effect, uh, impacting on the Earth's magnetosphere will shadow the moon somewhat or shadow an L2 orbit. But for the rest of the month, that uh, that the moon orbits the Earth, it is exposed to the full radiation of the sun. So likewise, an object, a station that is sitting out in an L2 position, an L4 position, or an L5 position, these are the Lagrangian points. These are uh, the points that are quite popular in science fiction for placing orbital habitats uh, L4 and L5 are the same orbit as the moon. Uh, they're about 60 degrees in front of or behind the moon. L2 is directly opposite the, Earth, the moon from the Earth. So it's outside the moon, beyond the moon. But it's a reasonably stable location where we could put a laboratory that would spend about a quarter of the month shield from solar radiation and three-quarters of a month exposed to radiation so now we have an ability to test shielding and look at the effects of shielding uh, to look to be able to capture and trap uh, solar radiation particles and test their effects on the laboratory animals on the instruments and on the uh, on the humans that live there and work there as well
2: This is one of the most ambitious proposals that I have seen for any type of orbiting installation uh, because it's got to be big enough, as you say, to spin and, and simulate gravity and it has to be placed in a fairly inaccessible orbital location. Which brings up to me what I'll call the $64 billion question, and that is, uh, have you or any of your colleagues actually begun to scope this out to see um, how it could be done, how many uh, launch missions it would take to place it on orbit, to supply it over its operational life, how much something like this would be likely to cost
3: that is the $64 billion question. A laboratory of this sort is going to be very expensive. The heavy lift required, I think that we decided in some casual conversation at the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop that we would have to lift essentially one deck, one piece at a time. I, My design tends to look like a tin can, or in fact, two tin cans with a string connecting them, and then you spin them against a common center. And one idea would be to take something that looks like a tuna can or a cat food can and stack them up, each one of those being a deck. The launch would be a fairly heavy launch, and it would require probably something akin to the Apollo lunar missions in order to get each piece uh, into place. It may be the case for something like this that an L4 or an L5 might be a better location. It would be a little bit more accessible, but again, it would take the equivalent of a three-day transit to get to that location, the same as the Apollo missions to the moon. So No, it hasn't really been scoped out very much. And, yes, I do expect it would be fairly expensive. I do pitch this idea as an alternative to sending uh, manned missions to other planets and discovering that our astronauts are not able to do their jobs once they get there. Because, in fact, that would be a very, very expensive proposition.
2: It would indeed, and especially if it resulted in uh, mission failure, it would be a very expensive mission failure. Well, it is an interesting uh, proposal, and I do encourage our listeners to uh, check out your article about it, but I'd like to shift gears a little bit right now and uh, move away from this topic into something a little bit more general because you have actually done research for a lot of different organizations, ranging from the National Science Foundation to DARPA, from the National Institute on Drug Abuse to the Office of Naval Research. And I I wonder if you could tell our listeners about any um, particularly interesting or surprising findings that you have uh, Come across in your research?
3: That's a very good question. Throughout my career, most of what I have studied has been how the brain works and in particular how memory works. I started off, I believe you mentioned at the start, over a hundred papers. I've been in the field for about 35 years. And during the time, a lot of work was spent studying the effects of drugs of abuse on memory. And I then moved on with some of the more recent projects that have looked at some of the more esoteric applications of the research into neuroprosthetics and now to effects of radiation on memory. And I'm starting to take a look at some means of possibly alleviating or at the very least predicting effects of epilepsy in the brain. One of the more interesting things that we have found is that when a brain, and in this case I'm going to talk about mammalian brain, not simply limiting it to human brains, when a brain does a memory task best example would be a person drives to work or drives to the store and they park in a particular place and they go into work or they go into the store, come out and have to remember where they parked. And that's a problem. How do you remember where you parked? This is called working memory. We don't have to keep it for very long. We keep it for a few minutes to a few hours. And We can mimic the effects of working memory in a laboratory with a laboratory animal by having them do a task that requires them to remember a location or an object for a few minutes and then use that stored memory and go back to say, okay, this is the response that has to be made because I know I'm in the same place or I know this is the same object, make the response, and then move on and do it again and again and again and again with different information each time. Well, what we find is that there are parts of the brain that have very, very highly specific activity in terms of the different brain cells that become electrically active at the time when memory is encoded and when the memory is retrieved. So one of the more fascinating things that I have been involved with Uh, throughout my career and right up to the present day is looking at that activity and saying, can you, can we as researchers, as observers, observe a pattern that is repeatable that says, this is the information, this is the memory that's being stored, and that is something that is behind the push to be able to create an interface between a brain and a computer uh, interface between a brain and a machine say for example for a prosthetic uh, there is some fascinating work that has come out of the attempts to build artificial limbs that are controlled strictly by the activity of uh, neurons of brain cells and of being able to develop some ways of interfacing directly with computers and eventually to have those computers interface back to the brain providing information. But it all stems down to can we identify specific patterns of activity of those brain cells, of those neurons that represent a specific piece of information that the brain has processed, and in this case, in memory. That's what I've been working with. We've got some really neat stuff, including a demonstration last year where we could show that information could be picked up uh, out of one rat brain and made available to another rat, and they could use it to perform the task using the memory, the exact same information that another rat had done. And in this case... The second rat had not ever been trained to do the things that the first rat had done, so it was able to. We were able to transfer memory and show that that was effective. It's a really neat, very exciting finding.
2: That is absolutely fascinating, and I, I one of the things I love is your willingness and enthusiasm to to share all of this information with as many people as you can. For instance, I understand that next month you're giving a presentation at the North Carolina Academy of Science uh, that's called Promoting Science Through Science Fiction. And I don't know whether that's open to the public. Maybe you could speak to that. But what are some of the other things that you do to bring science to the public?
3: Well, in terms of the North Carolina Academy of Sciences, that meeting is open to the public. You can go to the uh, to the website. I don't have the URL directly in front of me, but you can search uh, NC Academy of Science and take a look for their meeting that will be held in March. Uh, I... I do not know the particulars, but I do know that there is a sign-up that says, I want to attend the meeting, so you can. Uh, so it is publicly available. I, this actually came about because of a colleague that knows that I talk to science fiction authors and write a little bit myself and said, you know, one of the things we have as scientists is a problem being understood by the public. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> this is something that I like to do. She said, well, what I'd love for you to do is talk to your fellow scientists about how to talk to the public through the realm of science fiction, which is the sort of thing that I really do enjoy doing. And the, some of the activities are, include science fiction conventions where there are panels that are specifically about science, but also panels where we can discuss, well, what type of science was put into this zombie novel. Can there be such a thing as a zombie apocalypse, a zombie epidemic? Well, it all depends on whether you want To talk about supernatural zombies or do you want to talk about something scientific in which there might be a drug or might be a virus that affects a particular part of the brain, that affects memory, that affects the ability to make decisions, what we call executive function. So this is one of the ways that I interact with the public is to do these what-if ideas. How can we take what we know in science and apply it to the public. At the same time, how can we look at a number of the science fiction ideas that the public is exposed to? Science fiction is very prevalent in our society. If you look at the top movies, we find that science fiction and adventure and even fantasy uh, are the top Uh, most popular movies, a number of TV programs, and it is commonplace now for people to understand what was the TV show The Six Million Dollar Man. The Six Million Dollar Man is something that inspired me when I was a student getting into the field, and it was science fiction. Martin Caden was the author who wrote the books that were behind what became the TV show and the movies that came out of it, but it was science fiction. The level of interfacing between the brain and the bionic prosthetics did not exist. Uh, The show was... Uh, more than 30 years ago, almost 40 years ago, and it proposed things that did not exist then, but as a matter of fact, they exist now. So we live in a science fiction world, and one of the best ways to get people to understand the real science is to relate it to science fiction, and that's what I love to do.
2: And in fact, you're going to be the science guest of honor at LibertyCon this June.
3: Yes, that's right. I'm very much looking forward to that. LibertyCon is a nice, small, casual convention that has a lot of people in the sciences involved and who attend. Uh, Several of the past science guests have been Uh, Les Johnson who does work for NASA, Travis Taylor, another Bain author uh, who has multiple degrees in physics and who is a very engaging, entertaining um, scientist and speaker and author, Uh, Stephanie Osborne, Catherine Asaro, a number of people with solid, solid science credentials have been science guests of honor. I am quite honored myself to be on their roster this year uh, with David Weber as the author guest of honor. Uh, Let's see, I believe Steve Jackson with gaming and Howard Taylor, the uh, uh, web cartoonist behind Schlock Mercenary is the uh, Master of Ceremonies. It is a top-notch group and an absolutely wonderful convention, and there is a lot of really good science and engineering as well as some fun. We we have fun with the idea of a zombie apocalypse or, or an undead apocalypse or um, poking fun at some of the sillier science in the movies or the TV uh or even in the books that we see but there's also some really very solid literature and science fiction and and uh and fantasy discussed as well and a lot of authors come out to sit and very casually talk with the fans so it is a fun uh fun convention as for what they're going to be doing with me, I understand uh, they're going to work me very hard. And we will be having uh, uh, some interviews about uh, very similar to this one about what I do in the laboratory and some of my findings and some of my uh, publications. And a few fun things too. There is a Uh, Mad Scientist panel where we discuss the top science stories of the year, uh, whether we agree with how they were covered in the public or not, uh, how they're covered in the press, or what we think might be the big science discovery of the next year, the next five years, the next ten years. It's, uh, It's an excellent, excellent convention for people who like science and science fiction and fantasy.
2: Well, congratulations on being named the science guest of honor. Do you want to mention any other appearances that you're going to make? And uh, how can folks keep up with what you're doing?
3: Well, I do have a uh, website, tedroberts.com, and I promise to uh, try to keep it updated with my appearances. I do a few, I do appear at a few uh, uh, small science fiction conventions in the southeast region. Uh, Typically, uh, I can be found at uh, uh, RavenCon, although I do have to bow out this year. RavenCon is held in Richmond in April. Mysticon is coming up in two weeks in Roanoke. Then there's the uh, Congregate, which is a fairly new convention. It is in its second year. It will be held in High Point, North Carolina, in... July. Liberty Con, of course, is in Chattanooga in June. And then my year pretty much ends with Dragon Con. Dragon Con is a big multimedia convention in Atlanta over Labor Day. I love it, but it takes a lot of time and energy. And that's pretty much when I end my year. But I continue writing articles for the Bain website. I am working on some short fiction to try to get out this next year, and as I said, on my website, I will try to keep posted all the uh, the latest, and I certainly welcome people coming up and saying, hey, I enjoyed your talk. I do try to have a, an Ask a Scientist panel at uh, a lot of the conventions I go to, because there are... Writers, budding writers, and fans alike who say, I've always had this question, and if I can't answer it, we'll try and go find somebody that can. And I think that is a great way to bring science to the public.
2: Well, we appreciate you not only doing that regularly, but uh, doing this interview with us for the podcast. And thanks for being with us, Ted.
3: Oh, I appreciate it, Gray. Uh, Really good talking with you. And I look forward to seeing you at one of those conventions as well.
2: Indeed you shall. This has been Part 2 of a two-part interview with Dr. Ted Roberts. If you missed Part 1, go to Bain.com and under the Bain Community, find the podcast link. And there you'll find a link to Part 1.
1: Now here's the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free, or choose from more than a 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup. It's the 1930s in America, but this is an America that's been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good. Some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is very good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magical-based apocalypse. They are known as the Grimnor Knights. According to the Grimnor Knights, something bad is on the way, and only actives like Jake stand a chance of stopping it before humanity is enslaved. Here's Bronson Pincho with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. CHAPTER
0: Twenty Two. Billy Clanton and Frank McLowry commenced to draw their pistols at the same time Tom McLowry jumped behind a horse. I had my pistol in my overcoat pocket where I had put it. When I saw Billy and Frank draw their pistols, I drew my pistol. I knew that the McLowry brothers had the reputation of having wizard's magic, and I aimed at Frank McLowry. The first two shots which were fired were fired by Billy Clanton and myself. He shot at me, and I shot at Frank McLowry. I do not know which shot was first. We fired almost together. Morgan then shot Billy Clanton. The fight then became general. After several shots were fired, Ike Clanton ran up and grabbed my arm. I could see no weapon in his hand and thought at the time he had none, and so I said to him, The fight has now commenced. Go to fighting or get away. At the same time, I pushed him off with my left hand. He started and ran down the side of the building and disappeared between the lodging house and the photograph gallery. My next shot struck Frank McLowry in the belly. He staggered off on the sidewalk but was still able to pick up a horse to throw at us. Virgil was struck by the flying horse before Holliday, who had the shotgun, fired at and killed Frank McLowry. Tom McLowery was unarmed. It made no difference, for his kind does not need a pistol to kill, and I shot him in the head. Testimony of Wyatt Earp Tombstone Epitaph, 1881 UBF Tempest Captain, I found them again, the teleradioscope operator said. I wish they'd quit calling me that. Francis walked over and looked over the UBF employee's shoulder. All he could see were green lights moving up and down, some fast, some slow, and some not at all. They'd tried to explain to him how the machine worked, but it was all about electrical resonance against metallic objects and the frequency and speed of return and traversing whatnots and so forth, and it just made him want to drink really bad. Where? About a hundred miles further south than we expected, they've changed course. I think they're heading for the Marianas. That didn't make any sense, but at least they weren't getting any closer to Japan. That had been making him really nervous. Driver. Um, it's Helm, sir, replied the man stationed at the very front of the glass bubble cockpit. Francis was still trying to learn the volunteers' names. Very well, Mr. Helm he said, and couldn't figure out why that caused Lance to snicker. Follow that blimp. Lance was sitting in one of the vacant chairs in the command center with his boots up on a bank of sensitive electronics. You've really got no idea what you're doing, do you? At least he was decent enough to lower his voice so the men wouldn't be able to hear them over the engines. Frankly, not even the slightest. He took a seat at the empty communication station, Most of the seats were empty in the command center. Less than a quarter of the Tempest's crew had volunteered to stay, and that was only after he'd promised some very hefty bonuses. Two security men had stuck around, and one was a brute. Grandfather's healer had told him politely to go to hell, but at least he'd convinced the man to stick around San Francisco long enough to help Mr. Browning once his power had recovered. The only other functionary who'd stayed was, surprisingly enough, Mr. Chandler grandfather's accountant all the rest had assured him that they would see to company business and he had no doubt that they were currently maneuvering to get the ubf board to somehow get rid of him before grandfather's body was even cold so he had a handful of barely mended grimdwar knights a drastically undermanned and unarmed prototype ship and no clue what he was doing He'd broken a direct order from a grimoire elder and would probably be cast out of the society he'd devoted his life to if he lived that long, and he still hadn't even really come to terms with the fact that he was now, theoretically, the richest man in the world. Mind if I make a suggestion? Lance didn't bother to wait for the reply. If we're going to try this, then we need every advantage we can get. The Tokugawa is probably still running a skeleton crew, but that means they'll have five times as many men and at least one mean son of a bitch of an iron guard. They won't be expecting this, but they will have men on watch. And they'll probably be doing it from behind mounted guns, which we don't happen to have. So how about we use that radio bouncer to keep track of them and not get into visual range until dark? Francis sighed. How about I just make you captain? The grizzled knight thought about it. Do I get to wear the fancy hat? You figure out how to get Jane off the Tokugawa alive, I'll have your old cowboy hat gold-plated. Banish Island, Micronesia Pirate Bob Southunder, scourge of the South Seas, terror of the Marianas, killer of men, sinker of ships, and general pain in the Imperium's rear, took the time to pass out treats to all the village children like some sort of kindly South Pacific Santa Claus before joining his men on a mission. Where'd you get the Mr. Goodbars? Sullivan asked as Southunder gave a candy bar to a kid, patted him on the head, and sent him on his way. They were on an Imperium cargo ship, believe it or not. Why, you want one? Sure. As a general rule, Jake Sullivan never turned down anything free. The two of them walked up the forest path toward the remains of what had once been a mighty volcano. There were five heavily armed pirates right behind, and he was sure that was no accident. He'd not yet earned Southunder's trust, the pirate had refused to talk further about the geotel Hotel yesterday. He'd slept in the village as a guest, but he'd seen the occasional flashes of cigarettes glowing in the jungle from the men assigned to watch him all night. He'd woken up with one of the Japanese serving girls crawling onto his sleeping mat, but he'd turned her away as politely as he could without her speaking hardly any English. No like girls? No, like girls just fine. No like me, then? No, you're nice. Oh, have girl already? Yeah, something like that. She'd left him alone, and he'd gone back to staring at the tin roof, hating himself because he'd finally fallen asleep again only to catch himself dreaming of Delilah's body, her soft skin pressed against him, his lips on her neck, and he had awoken again, cursing himself as a selfish, pathetic failure of a man, He'd lain there awake until the sun came up. They'd eaten breakfast in silence, more fish, fruit, and wild boar. None of the pirates commented on the forty-five on his hip or the automatic rifle he'd reassembled. They might not trust him yet, but anybody worthy of sharing your hospitality should be worthy of helping to defend it. The men had been excited. Something was happening. After breakfast, Southunder had invited him on this walk. "'Are we going to destroy the jail-town now?' he asked. "'It's not here,' Southunder answered. "'I don't care where it is, "'as long as it gets broken into a million pieces and burned. "'Are we going to go get it then?' "'I've kept it safe since you were wearing short pants, Mr. Sullivan. "'A few more hours won't kill you.' "'Nope, but if the chairman gets it, he'll kill the whole world.' Laughter always seemed to come easy to Southunder.' truth be told, I'll be glad to get rid of it. I would have gone last night, but my ship was still getting patched from our last job. I didn't dare keep it with me, because if they found me, they'd find it. No, not even Pershing knew exactly where it is, for exactly that reason. I'm the only one who knows. It's well hidden. We'll dig it up later. Sullivan stopped walking, right in the middle of the trail. The men following paused, uneasy. You buried it? Well, of course. I'm a pirate, he answered. Sullivan shook his head and went back to walking. Pirates and buried treasure. I can't believe this. So where are we going? We have a train to catch, and you wanted a chance to earn my trust. The dirigible was sleek, of a design that he'd never seen before, It was a single hull with one lightly armored bag. It was a hybrid with two lifter wings folded in so that it could fit inside the hollow formed by the partially collapsed volcanic cone. There were four engines, big gleaming things with propellers longer than he was tall. Sullivan walked under the cabin, dodging between the tie ropes as the crew let it gently rise. There was no top structure. Everything was under the gas bag like they used to build them, It was remarkably streamlined for such an older design. Even the front of the cockpit was a circular mass of glass and aluminum struts with not a square edge to be seen. The cabin stretched from the very front to the very back, so seamlessly melded with the gas bag that it might as well have been one piece. It might have been old, but it was well cared for. The brass fittings gleamed. Every inch of hull was freshly painted, light gray underneath, dark blue on top. On closer inspection, none of the parts seemed to match. The exhaust pipes on one side were different than the other. Two of the engines were different designs. As he studied it, he realized that the whole thing had had so many parts replaced from scavenged or captured vessels, it was hard to tell where the original ship began. "'Isn't she beautiful?' Southunder asked. "'It's an actual Zeppelin, not some poor Stuyvesant UBF knockoff.' but handcrafted by the finest airship cogs there's ever been it looks old sullivan said aged like good cheese southunder agreed it don't have much armor 200 feet of raw speed i could cover every inch in dreadnought plate and it wouldn't help us beat the entire jap navy we strike quick and get out "'The bag is divided into locking cells. "'We could lose three-quarters of them "'and still limp it home.' Hydrogen, hydrogen blimps made him nervous. "'Not a lot of helium out here,' he said. "'Don't worry, I've got a torch.' "'A torch, as in one. "'And if they lost their man who could control fire "'and then took a hit from an incendiary round.' "'It don't have many guns.' We don't slug it out with kaga, Sullivan. Twin pom-poms in the nose and two more in the rear. One of our mutual friend John's big 50 cals on either side to keep the fighters off. And a few rail-mounted light machine guns, plus we've got two fighters on board. Top-of-the-line Curtis R-5C Raptors, most maneuverable biplane in the world. Some of the Japanese Navy ships carried like 30 fighters, after seeing what he had to work with, Sullivan came to respect Southunder even more. The crew was leading the dirigible out from its hiding place and into the sun. They were going on a mission. Pershing ever tell you why they ran me out of the society? Southunder asked. Sullivan shook his head in the negative. They said I was too impulsive, too reckless. "'You use a twenty-five-year-old Zeppelin with a few guns on it "'to harass the most powerful navy in the world, they might have had a point.' "'Southunder ignored him. Pershing saw it, too. "'He saw that times were changing for our kind. "'Something big is coming, and the world is going to be one way or the other, "'and I don't want it to be the chairman's way. "'Too many folks think that they can keep the world from changing.' I've got a wife who I only see when I bring in loot to sell in the free cities. We've been married for 30 years and I've got kids and grandbabies. You got a wife, a family, Sullivan? I got nothing. His voice was so gentle that it was hard to hear him. I don't want my grandkids to grow up in a world run by a bunch of fascists or socialists or progressives or anarchists or communists or eugenicists or any sort of ist or ism. When I get those types, the men who just need to control everything, to tell everybody else what to do, I stick it in and break it off. I'm fighting for freedom. Proudly, he gestured around the cave at his men. He loved them like a father. We ride the air and plunder the seas. We're the last free men and I'll die a free man. Amen, Sullivan said. There's an Imperium dirigible train that's gotten out of their convoy routes because of the bad weather north of here. We're going to take it and you're going to show me you mean business. Southunder raised his hand and gestured at the name on the side of the dirigible. Mr. Sullivan, I give you... The free ship, bulldog marauder, best damn dirigible there's ever been. Imperium Submarine J-47, Flower of Carnage The Imperium captain watched the dirigible rising from the side of the volcano through the periscope. He was normally lord of this vessel, but in the presence of a shadow guard he had to defer to his betters. Having four of them aboard made him deeply uncomfortable. He moved aside so the elite soldier could look through the glass. We could surface and engage with the deck gun before they are in position to return fire. Nope, the shadow guard commanded. The darkened sub stunk of diesel fumes and polluted air. They'd been recycling the air for hours, The shadow guard's finder had already vomited all over the deck twice, and the stink was annoying the captain. He had no patience for seasickness. Their orders were specific. He had not been told what they were supposed to be retrieving, but awareness of their presence could cause its destruction. They had been ordered to maintain complete radio silence and only communicate through the shadow guard's magic. The waters ran clear here and he knew that his submarine would show up like a vast black shadow so close to the surface. He shouted orders. The dive bell sounded. The finder was sitting cross-legged on the grate, eyes closed, deep in meditation. The captain had never seen one such as this. He had removed his loose shirt and his torso had been crisscrossed with kanji. The captain wore two as befitted his ranks, so he knew a bit about such things, and he could see that none of the finders, Kanji, were based in the physical geometries. Rather, all seven of his were attuned to increasing his power sensitivity. The schools had taught him about finders. They could feel and see through the disembodied spirits that inhabited the shadow of this world. A truly powerful finder could actually become a summoner, capable of bringing in servants from other planes and giving them life here. But this finder was different. He was like a perfectly tuned tracking dog. He imagined that such sensitivity would drive one mad. Finders were limited by such things as range, and certain materials or spells could thwart them. The disembodied were easily distracted, but looking at this particular strange specimen... He knew that nothing brought within his range could possibly hide. It was as if he'd been specifically bred for this kind of mission. Apparently, his submarine's job was to just get this man within range of whatever it was he was seeking. It seemed to take forever, but the captain was used to being patient. It came with the assignment. The heat from the burning kanji permeated the sub. It was like being next to a bank of electric heating coils. The finder opened his eyes and let out a long, exhausted breath. The shadow guard leaned forward eagerly.
1: I have it. That was the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic is read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Special thanks to Bain Consulting Editor Gray Reinhart for conducting his excellent interview with Ted Roberts. And an indoor firing range stocked with instantiated nightmares too evil to live for use as targets and a taxonomic tree decorated with bioluminescent species blinking out his name in lights. To Dr. Ted Roberts, author of A Translunar Biolab. Hurrah! That's found on Bain.com. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy storytelling. And keep reaching for the stars,
3: especially that series, Asteroid. What the heck is going on up there?